Welcome back to Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt, and yes, the World Cup 2018 has finally started. We're recording this just minutes after the opening game between Russia and Saudi Arabia, in which the Russians extraordinarily have managed to score five goals, and Saudi Arabia have proved what we did suspect, that they are the poorest team at this tournament. With me as usual to talk about that and an awful lot more is Al Jazeera journalist Tony Caron. Hello, Tony. Hello, David. Having a laugh. <laughs> and at the dials, also having a laugh, I hope, is our producer, Roger Shaw. Hello, Roger. Hello, David. Hello, Tony. OK, so let's just crack on. That game, it was 5-0. What did you make of that, Tony? Well, <laughs> if a Russian side that poor can put five past Saudi Arabia, then you're talking about a team that's desperately poor. That, to me, felt like watching, you know, the English second tier. It's called the championship. That would be the playoff game. That would be sort of the quality of football there was kind of, you know, Derby County versus Aston Villa, perhaps. They they completely fell to pieces. There were seven minutes of urgency. And then, you know, why pass forward when you can pass backwards and lose the ball? You know, <laughs> you have to think if that's how they're going to perform against this very mediocre Russian team, how are they going to do against Luis Suarez and against Mohamed Salah? I also enjoyed, I don't know if you saw, Tony, there was a moment when the cameras focused on the Troika themselves, the Crown Prince Mohammed from Saudi Arabia on the one side, Vladimir Putin on the other, and then Gianni Infantino in the middle. It sort of reminded me of a scene out of Woody Allen's Sleeper where people are fighting over the orb. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> there was a handshake between Putin and MBS after the first goal that made you wonder, was there a bet on this? You know, hasn't an oil field changed hands somewhere. But even more arch, I think, was you might have noticed that among the advertisers featured prominently on the hoardings was Qatar Airways. Now, Qatar Airways is not allowed to fly in Saudi airspace because of the blockade that Saudi Arabia has put on what is its arch regional nemesis, Qatar. It will have been very, very annoying to the Saudis and probably caused a bit of a chuckle in Doha to have the Qatar Airways ad backing this humiliating defeat. I wonder if the opening ceremony caused a similar chuckle in uh, in the Gulf. What did you make of it, Tony? Did you actually watch the opening ceremony this time around? I did, and I really wonder what to make of these things. I mean, it's a mishmash. It's a mashup. It's like every Nintendo character that ever was is suddenly featured in the same game. I mean, the way I read it is, you know, look at Sochi 2014. Okay, another sporting mega event. And it's an unbelievable and rather surreal, Cyrillic alphabet of Russian triumph of Russian icons, you know, done in extraordinary 3D. And it's time for a different message, isn't it? I kind of felt like normal, wholesome entertainment from a normal, wholesome country. Saturday night on state television, a variety show, you know, with uh, the kind of pop star who likes to sing for oligarchs. A diva from the opera, jugglers, acrobats, bag costumes. The smell of normalisation is in my nostrils. And, and Putin's inspirational speech, which sounded like, I don't know if you remember Impracor, the old Soviet uh, Comintern press agency. With some affection. Yes, exactly. A great step forward in promoting <laughs> friendship and understanding among the peoples. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, he stays on script, but, you know, Infantino, he can't resist, can he? He has to have a little flourish. And he says, you know, football is going to conquer Russia. And you know what? I think exactly the opposite is what is going to happen. Russia and the Russian regime has conquered football. 
Roger, did you manage to catch any of this? Yeah, well, on, on your recommendation, I set my alarm early here in San Francisco to catch the very beginning of this opening ceremony. And uh, I have to say, I think my favorite part was following along on our WhatsApp group. <laughs> I mean, half of this is unpublishable, but I would just like to read some choice quotes here. My favorite, I think, is from Tony Karen, which just says, all of this is meaningless. <laughs> You know, but guys, this is a window on the soul of the Russian ruling class. I don't think that's meaningless. I think that carries an enormous weight of meaning. Just, you know, it depends how you feel about the meaning. <laughs> One of the other great features of this uh, World Cup has been the FIFA Congress, the Get Together, the Coot Nanny for the football family. They always hold one on the eve of a World Cup. I wonder, Tony, did you manage to catch any of the splendid Congress on Wednesday? Ah, David, I'm afraid some of us have day jobs. <laughs> okay, this is why at nine o'clock in the morning I find myself at my breakfast table watching it on the YouTube stream. I mean, just to say, you know, to set this moment and this game in context, that is where Russia and politics has conquered football rather than the other way around. Vladimir Putin is not two days ago, signed up to speak at the Congress, right? Somewhere between agenda items six and seven, Gianni Infantino, suddenly looking very flustered, turns to the general secretary and says, no, we're not going to the next item. The president of the Russian Federation has turned up and he sweeps into the place, works the room, the smile is magnetic, the charm, the handshake, and they give him the rostrum. And he has his moment. It's like, this is my show. And we're so used to kind of thinking about host countries being in thrall, you know, to the colonial metropole of FIFA. And you know what? This time around, FIFA is actually, when it comes to manipulating the spectacle, FIFA has met its match. Vladimir Putin for the golden boot in this tournament. <laughs> now, you know, speaking of Infantino, uh, we had Al Jazeera correspondent, Lee Wellings in the room at the FIFA Congress on Wednesday, and he managed to ask a question to Johnny Infantino about a different world leader, about Donald Trump. Surprise, surprise, he had trouble getting a, a straight answer. Hey, dude, well, let's hear that. Let's hear that, Roger. Play it. I mentioned what's now an infamous tweet by President Trump that said it'd be a shame if nations lobby against the United States in this vote, nations that the US supports and has supported. And it was a threat, but... FIFA doesn't allow any politics. Football in a country has to be run away from politics. So Mr. Infantino, of course, started answering a completely different question. So I had to grab the microphone back off of the FIFA representative that had handed it to me and wrestle it back off him and interrupt, which sounds quite rude, but I had to do it, Mr. Infantino, to get him back to the question I asked, which he then answered again, failing to actually make reference to the tweet or Mr. Trump. So I went to him for a third time. And finally, we got to what really happens with FIFA. Everyone sort of wants to present themselves as a duck or a swan on the water with it all very calm. But there's so much happening beneath the surface. And I got beneath the surface the third time I went to him because he said, nobody tells FIFA what to do. And you just saw a little flash of discomfort that was almost anger. And that's the real FIFA, that everyone's calm on the surface. A lot's going on behind closed doors, and a lot is left unsaid by them. That was Lee Wellings in Moscow. Well, well done, Lee Wellings. I approve of journalists who persistently ask the question. Yeah, there's an awful lot going on beneath the surface. You know, while politics has clearly colonised the FIFA Congress, it's good to know that good old-fashioned money still talks. 
that seems to me the reason that the 2026 um, World Cup has gone to the United bid. What did you make of that, Tony? Remember, the FIFA bribery system is not, you don't have to have individuals pocketing wads of cash. You know, national federations are going to make a choice. Are they making a choice based on what's best for the game? No, they're making a choice on what's best for them. So who's going to be funding their development programs and so on? It's, it's bribery that suits the federation and empowers its leaders, but it's not putting money in their Swiss bank accounts. I thought there was a fantastic little move from the Brazilian Federation, who, of course, were pledged to vote for the United bid, along with the rest of Gomabol. And the dude from Brazil votes for Morocco because he thought it was going to be a secret ballot and he would get away with switching his vote at the last minute. I can't imagine why he did that. But I can imagine a man who would know, a man who knows more about South American football really than most. Tim Vickery, a journalist who's written for the BBC, ESPN and Sports Illustrated, covers the game from Rio where he's lived for the last two decades. And last week I had a chance to catch up with Tim Vickery on Skype and ask him about how the South Americans, the five teams who are here at World Cup 2018, are going to do and how they fared in a more globalised football world. All right, let's go ahead and hear that interview. The doyen of English-speaking football journalists in South America, the one, the only, Tim Vickery. Tim, welcome to the show. And Portuguese-speaking as well. You know, I do a column for BBC Brazil. <laughs> I do a lot of Brazilian TV. So uh, this is this is a bilingual career that I've ludicrously ended up in. And I'm delighted to say you also taught the whole of BBC Match of the Day how to actually pronounce names in Spanish and Portuguese at the last World Cup. I hope you'll be doing the same this time around. I, I don't think so. I think there's... <laughs> been considerable backsliding since but i'll try and you know be part of the pronunciation police <laughs> south america have got five teams at the 2018 world cup brazil argentina uruguay colombia and peru and yet they come without having won the world cup since 2002 for what it's worth the world club cup has been won once by a south american team since 2007 and although we see, you know, an extraordinary number of amazing Latin American players constantly on our screen, apart from Brazil, none of these five are really favourites. So what's the state of South American football? Has globalisation been kind to it? No, it clearly hasn't. It's been very, very unkind. First, it's taken the players. You look at the Brazil squad, there are three home-based players in that. You look at the Argentina squad, there are three home-based players in that. Peru's coach says, you know, it's not really a measure of quality to do well in the Peruvian league. So it's taken the players, but it's also, globalisation has also taken the ideas. We're seeing more ideas of play coming out of Europe so the fate of South American football at the moment is uh, watching the best players on TV, many of which it produces, but instead of, uh, of, of selling its spectacle, it's selling its stars. Clearly, there's an inequality between Europe and uh, South America in globalisation. And as you say, the players, the interest, the focus, the money is all in Europe. Where did that go into Latin American football? Why haven't we seen the benefits? And similarly, you've got all of these players playing at the very top level in Europe why are they not why are they not part of a network bringing this kind of knowledge and sophistication back home at the end of their careers yeah very good questions i think um 
part of the reason for where the money has gone is that it's gone to pay the wages of three, four months ago. You're dealing with a, a wage structure of global football, which has become inflated by what has happened in Europe. So wages for a, for a South American player, especially in Brazil and, and a little bit in Argentina, have gone up a lot. Even with TV rights, the activity runs at a loss. So the clubs are forced to sell in order to balance the books. Now, this leads you into a very dangerous area where some of those in charge of football, some of those running football, almost have a vested interest in the failure of the domestic model. Because while the domestic model is failing, that creates the necessity to sell players, which creates the opportunity for money to be funneled into private bank accounts. I'm shocked and delighted by your cynicism on that question. OK, from one tangled web to another tangled web, the Russia 2018 World Cup. Let's start with Peru, Tim. They haven't been there since 1982. So where have Peru been? How did they get back? And what does it mean in Peru? Well, it means so much. For the likes of Peru, they don't really have any great hopes of winning the tournament. But qualifying is like a statement to the world. We're here. We exist we are part of the global discourse. Except when it comes to the Panini sticker supply chain, I hear. Well, doesn't that show it? Because Panini underestimated the demand for stickers in Peru. And the fact that Peru had qualified for the first time since 1982 sent the entire country into a mass frenzy. Fights breaking out in shops over the, uh, the remaining stickers because they just weren't enough. And now the whole country wanted to complete its album. The whole country wanted to feel part of this event because they had been, for, for nearly 20 years, absolutely terrible, really awful. Not only weak technically and tactically, but also caught in an absolute spiral of self-hatred. So what's changed it for them, then? Well, they brought in a coach, Ricardo Gareca, who uh, looks a lot like a kind of faded 1970s rock guitarist. What he has brought to an environment prone to great hysteria is calm. And, well, they had perhaps two pieces of, of, of good fortune. On one, there was an extra Copa America in 2016 to celebrate the centenary of the tournament. Now, that gave Peru an opportunity to regroup and for the coach to work with his players. And it's after that that their results really picked up. And the other one was that uh, they lost a game away to Bolivia 2-0. But Bolivia brought on a player for the last 10 minutes who was later ruled ineligible. So that game that Peru had lost 2-0, they were awarded by the stroke of a pen 3-0. Without those points and without those goals, they would not have got to Russia. But they have proved worthy of their good fortune because they were the form side towards the end of, of, of the qualification campaign. Uh, and um, they go to Russia with, uh, with an element of swagger about them. OK, they're up against France, Australia and Denmark. What chance of them getting out of the group, Tim? Well, what we've seen from uh, some Latin American teams in this situation before, um, those you know playing their first World Cup, either the first World Cup or the first World Cup for this generation, is that sometimes it can just all be too much. Now, the experience can be too much. The mental pressures can be too much. Uh, and I'm thinking, say, Ecuador 2002 or Honduras 2010. They don't, don't actually play their football, their best football until the third game, by which time it's too late. Peru must hit the ground running. Peru are newbies. But what about Colombia, who are, you know, last time around were often everybody's second team, a really fabulous bunch of players, mm. Hamas, Rodriguez, Falcao, etc., and a really lovely crowd a lot of the time in Brazil. Mm. They're back again, they're maturing. 
What sort of chance have they got? Before the last World Cup, the coach, the Argentine, Jose Peckerman, he said that Brazil 2014 will be the moment when Colombia take a definitive place at football's top table. Step one is completed. They reach the quarterfinals for the first time ever in, in the style that you mentioned. Subsequently, they have consistently been disappointing. Their qualification campaign was a very laboured affair with very few highlights. But that potential still exists. One problem I think they had in qualification was that the coach never knew his best side. He used, uh, I think, 45 players in 18 games, which is too many. Now, you've got to focus on 23, and I think that's, that's a help. James has had a frustrating four years because only so many players can be important at Real Madrid. He loves being important with Colombia. The centre-forward, Radamel Falcão-Garcia, who missed the last World Cup through injury, made a desperate attempt to get fit in time and probably put his career on the line. Well, he's now available. This will be his only World Cup. There is potential in, in this Colombia side. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they were to reach the quarterfinals again, but I can't see him going beyond. But if we're, if we're thinking of a nation in the future... Outside Uruguay, Brazil and Argentina, the South American nations who've already won the World Cup, if we're looking for a nation who one day will be capable of doing that, it's got to be Colombia. One of the amazing things about South American and Latin American football is often presidential and federal elections get time to occur in the middle of World Cups. And in Colombia's case, the cycle is like absolutely dead on. And we are going to have a, uh, a second round runoff, which I think will be necessary from the look of Colombian politics at the moment, yeah. bang in the middle of the World Cup. I wonder, have you ever been in Colombia, Tim, when, when this kind of stuff is going on? Because at the last World Cup, the degree of partying and then shooting and madness that followed just the opening game of Colombia's uh, campaign saw the mayor of Bogota who is one of the candidates in the presidential election actually you know ban drinking on future match days have you got any sense of what the mood in Colombia around this team is yeah I, I well remember being in Colombia when there was a referendum all the bars were shut uh, in an effort to you know to stop some of that madness but it ended up just making it more sinister and I, I had a gun pulled on me that night you know I ran like mad which perhaps wasn't the wisest thing to do but it it, it, it got me out of trouble um, they are they are such lovely people the Colombians I've, I've never felt more warmly welcomed anywhere and well at, at least I think you know that the country is much saner than it was back in the 80s and 90s when they had that first great football side whose history, whose trajectory is absolutely marked between two goals scored by Andres Escobar. You know, the one at Wembley in 88, when they got a 1-1 draw with England, was seen by the Colombians as a day when they came of age. And then, of course, the one in his own net against the United States in, in USA 94, uh, which ended up uh, ending his life in the, the absolute madness of senseless murders that Colombia was uh, the spiral of, of, of lunacy that Colombia was caught in at the time. Thankfully, things are not quite so bad a couple of decades later. So from the curse of cocaine in Colombia in uh, the 1980s and 1990s to the joy of legal marijuana in Uruguay in the 21st century. Super tranky Uruguay, <laughs> the most laid-back place on the planet. How is it, Tim, that this extraordinary tiny little country three million people sits you know we're not talking 1930 1950 world cups now in the 21st century is still at the top table still producing this extraordinary number of great players what, what's the alchemy there well, first, it's, it, it's history. As the, the coach, Andino Vieira, said in the 1966 World Cup, other countries have their history. Uruguay has its football. 
what else do you associate with Uruguay? Football is, is what Uruguay does. It's, uh, as the great Eduardo Galeano wrote, you know, that football team is like the proof of a nation. You know, this buffer state between Brazil and Argentina, it's got its football. So you always get this thing of one generation inspiring the next. But also, you've got a very bright fella in charge of the national team, Oscar Washington Tabares. What a name that is. It is, yeah. He's, he's been the coach, uh, El Maestro, because he's, as well as being a former footballer and a coach with a glorious history, he's also a qualified teacher. And he brings very much that kind of academic approach. You know, the chat that we started with, the effect of globalisation on South American football, that's all he thought about. He came to the obvious conclusion that we're a nation with three million. Our domestic football doesn't really matter we're never going to be able to hang on to our best players. We're going to lose them at, a, at an ever earlier age. So if we're going to stay competitive, what we, we've got to do is we've got to use the youth sides to produce men, citizens and players. But we're not producing players for Uruguayan domestic football. We're producing players for globalised football. And that means that these players, you groom them, you give them an absolute crash course in the identity and the importance of that sky blue shirt that the Uruguayan national team wear with such pride. And it's almost like the Jesuits. You know, then you've got them for life. Is that enough to get them to the semi-finals? Possibly, because the draw has been relatively kind. Certainly in the group phase, it's been relatively kind. The big question, though, I think, is are those young players ready to produce under the spotlight of the World Cup. It's one thing to do it in a friendly competition in China when they look very good beating the Czech Republic and Wales. That's one thing. But can those young players produce that level of performance under the global spotlight of the World Cup? And that's going to be one of the most fascinating issues at a tournament. I think they're asking the same question in Argentina, but not of their youth, but one of their most mature players. Once again, Argentina comes to the World Cup and is essentially Messi plus, and the nation waits for him to finally perform so he can ascend to divine status alongside Maradona. Is there any chance of that this time around? Well, I think one the idea that Messi doesn't perform for the national team now has to be put to bed. It's become increasingly clear how brilliant he has to be in order to carry a, a, a pretty ordinary group of players, especially in the defensive positions. Without Messi, they wouldn't have qualified. I can't ever remember a team as dependent on one player. He missed eight games in qualification. In those eight games, Argentina picked up seven points. He played 10 games. In those 10 games, Argentina picked up 21 points. Do the maths. <laughs> and, you know, we just talked about Uruguay and the importance of the under-20 sides. Over the last decade, the quality of, of Argentina's youth work has just fallen off a cliff. And this has also filtered through to the senior side. The goalkeepers, the fullbacks, the, the, the centre-backs, and almost all of them in the current squad are over 30, and there's hardly a, a good international-class player there. So what's your prognosis? Can they get past... I mean, I'm looking at the group, and, you know, Nigeria, Iceland, Croatia, none of them in their own way an entire pushover. They should get past them, shouldn't they? Or perhaps not? Well... Do you remember, you remember Thunderbirds? Anything could happen in the next half hour. Well, you know, Argentina's like this. Anything could happen in the next 30 days. Now, going into the World Cup, Nigeria, who, who they're playing, um, took them apart in a friendly to win 4-2. Spain thrashed them 6-1. Uh, and, and so Argentina really, you know, when they started preparing for the World Cup, they're starting from scratch. On the other hand, in comparison with four years ago, Messi arrives at the World Cup, we think, much, much fresher. You know, they wrapped up the, the Spanish league title early. 
Barcelona for the third consecutive year were knocked out of the Champions League uh, at the quarterfinal stage. It would seem for his last World Cup in his prime and perhaps his last World Cup and perhaps his last games for Argentina, it would seem that Messi is in better shape than he's been for previous tournaments. Perhaps Argentina could put in a challenge. You're not sounding too hopeful, Tim. Well, I think it would be it would be a great story. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it? Just we'd all we'd all love that. Last but not least, Brazil. We know under Titi they are transformed, they are playing well, they have new shape and application. Have they recovered from 7-1? Is that a factor? Where are their heads at? No, I, th- I think they have. You know, you look at the World Cup qualification campaign after he took over. That's 10 victories, two draws, 30 goals scored and three conceded. Hard to argue with. So I think that they've got their mojo back. And it, it really struck me vividly four years ago. I was in almost like, a, like an international bunker. Know, in the BBC studios, and a lot of people turned up with that romantic image of Brazilian football, which hadn't really applied for a few years. And during the course of the World Cup, even while Brazil were winning games, they were losing friends. Now, it just wasn't very easy on the eye. My real hope for Brazil in this World Cup is win or lose. And, you know, winning is going to be tough. Brazil are amongst the favourites, but win or lose, they remind us all of why we all fell in love with Brazil in the first place. And I think this team has, has the potential to do that. They've got, they have the potential to, to, to make that ball sing a little bit. So uh, as an old romantic who uh, cares more about being represented than actually winning titles, that's always my justification as a Tottenham fan, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite optimistic about Brazil going into this World Cup. Well, dude, if they can play as well as you can talk about South American football, they're going to go all the way to the final. Tim Vickery, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim underscore Vickery. That's V-I-C-K-E-R-Y, Tim underscore Vickery. I should also say I will be appearing on the World Football Phone-In on BBC Radio 5 Live with Tim and the rest of the crew tonight, 2am in the UK, but it will be available streaming online. Tony, what did you make of Tim's uh, analysis of South American football and the impact of globalisation? Well, I think everybody tries to play the same way, more or less. I mean, there, there's certain global conventions. Globalisation has brought that to the game and... You know, the question for Brazil, obviously, which is is going to be which European model they adopt. Are they going to park the bus as they've done in, in previous tournaments or are they going to play a little more expressively and expansively? And one key question for me, and it's not just because I'm a Liverpool fan, but I do believe they have the most advanced centre forward in the game right now in their squad, but he's usually on the bench. And who would that be? Roberto Firmino. Uh-huh. Yes, Roberto <laughs> Firmino brings a, an, a dimension to the forwards game that nobody else does. Roberto Firmino will create, will set up more crises in opposition defences than anybody else at this tournament. That's just a tip. A tip for Tite from Tony. <laughs> it gives me enormous pleasure to see you grind your Liverpool axe on these <laughs> occasions. Well, we will see. This weekend, Brazil are playing. Same so too, Argentina. There are all sorts of games coming up. So I guess it makes sense to move to our What to Watch segment. What what to, to watch? Watch. What, 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 what to watch? All right, there's that bumper again. So the idea here is there's 
so much happening during the World Cup, and I'm going to keep asking you guys for help and how to make sense of it all. What games are actually worth waking up at four in the morning to watch? Or what are the geopolitical dramas that are unfolding on the pitch that I should be aware of? Basically, what should I watch? Tony, what are your thoughts on that? The game which, about which I'm most passionate this weekend would be Mexico and Germany on Sunday. I, you know, I think El Tri, uh, the Mexican national team, really rec- represents so much in terms of the hopes and uh, the morale of a nation that's in a lot of political turmoil. Do you mean the United States or Mexico? Well, actually both. <laughs> both. Because actually it means so much to tens of millions of people in Mexico, but also to millions of Mexicans, either Mexican-Americans or Mexicans without citizenship inside the United States, sure. who've suffered the slings and arrows of the Trump administration, uh, slings and arrows and worse. The United States is not even there. Mexico is there. This represents the hopes and dreams. We all have to get behind Irving Lozano, the player to watch, better known as El Chucky. El Chucky for the horror movie character. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we all need to get behind him. And I think also, given this NAFTA World Cup bid, that is going to be 2026. Well, here's a test because the only home team for Amer- North American fans in the tournament is Mexico. Is white America going to get behind L3? I hope so. You heard it here first. David, what about you? What are you going to be watching? Well, I'm going to hand over the reins of what to watch on this episode to one of our favourite guests from Series 1, Shireen Ahmed. You may remember Shireen as a writer and football activist from Toronto, Canada. And I was particularly interested to know what's going on, you know, in Toronto, because the World Cup, sure, it's happening in Russia. But as we always say, really, it's happening absolutely everywhere else where people are gathering around TV sets and communities are watching games together. So I wanted to know what she's watching. I wanted to know what Toronto will be watching at the World Cup. I gave her a call on Skype earlier this week to find out. Hello, Shireen, and welcome back to the show. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, No, it's a pleasure, and it's a pleasure to have you here at the beginning of the World Cup. Tell me, what's the match in the early stages that you're most looking forward to seeing, and why? Um, The one that I've really got my eye on is Uruguay and Egypt on Friday, and I'll tell you why, because it's the end of Ramadan, and the last fast breaks on sundown on Thursday night, which means that there'll be this huge unified prayer for Egypt and there'll be prayers for Mosala's quick recovery. And I will probably be celebrating Eid somewhere and at a huge prayer hall with thousands of people who will also be on their phones pretending to be paying attention to the sermon and the congregational prayer when in fact checking scores. That is sensational. I had no idea that the timing is that the Eid, the end of Ramadan, the last fast, it's all done and Egypt are going to be playing Uruguay in the World Cup. I will probably have earbuds on under my hijab live streaming the match. (laughs) I think I might be disinvited to Eid prayer this year. I love it. It's like being at school in the early 1980s when we used to listen to uh, cricket test matches, would you believe, on radio commentary secretly in class, similarly (laughs) with the wires going up the sleeve of your school jumper. (laughs) What's the World Cup like in Toronto? These days it's a very global city. It's extraordinarily diverse. You know, but neither the Canadians, the Jamaicans, the Italians or the Irish, who are four of the (laughs) biggest communities, are in this World Cup. So who is Toronto rooting for? Who in the diaspora is out there with a team? Who are the neutrals going to follow? 
you're right. Toronto is very global. And because Canada has only been to the World Cup once and never been since in 1986, communities have a tendency in such beautiful, multicultural, rich communities root for their own. I've seen so many Egyptian flags, I cannot tell you. I've also seen quite a bit of Spain. I'm trying to acquire an Iranian one, which is far more difficult than one might expect. We see France, Germany. But the Egyptian thing is fantastic. I mean, Toronto is not particularly known for a kind of Egyptian uh, population. So is this Arab-speaking peoples from all over the region who have settled in Canada, who are adopting Egypt as their team? Or have we just discovered a lot of Egyptians all of a sudden? I think the area in which I live is is very, very diverse. And there are quite a few Egyptians. And I think that what you'll find is people from maybe Muslim-majority worlds that don't qualify or can't attend will be looking to a neighbor. I have a friend who's Pakistani and Pakistani for generations, but saying, no, 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 historically, I'm Iranian, I'm Persian, historically, so we'll support Team Ali. And I understand that because I can make the same argument. But then I, you know, I tell people that my love is for Morocco, the support is for Iran. So I mean, and of course, then there's Brazil. If you love football, you love Brazil. I mean, so there's always that. Shireen, (laughs) it sounds to me like this is going to be one long cosmopolitan love fest for you, (laughs) which is just how the World Cup should be. I really thank you so much for speaking to us. I really hope we can catch up with you and Toronto and all of those Egyptian fans and find out how it goes. (laughs) Thank you so much, David. Pleasure. You can hear more of Shireen on her own podcast, Burn It All Down. Meantime, we are out of time, but we will be back next Tuesday and next Friday because we are coming out twice a week for the rest of the World Cup, so mark your calendars. Until then, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Game of Our Lives. This show is a production of Al Jazeera's Jetty Studios, recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK. Music from Bang Data. Thank you, Tony Karen. Spasibo, Tavarish. <laughs> and thank you to our producer, Roger Shaw. Thanks, David. I'm David Goldblatt, and we will see you on Tuesday. Enjoy. Guys, I'm almost getting nostalgic for Shakira. <laughs>